Welcome back, Coming Brainiacs, to the pod. Talking about uh, chapter 18, although we're not, because I left no discussion prompts and there were no comments. Might have been something to do, like, I'm just trying to figure out why there was no comments. I think it might be because this is the most boring book ever and no one cares. Um, but I'm not sure. Anyway. Um, the good news is that means we can just kick on to the next chapter, if I can get it to load up, here we are, chapter X1X, which in English is 19, <clears throat> um, I'm also going to be applying moisturizing cream to my face whilst podcasting, so if you hear some weird um, noises, that's what that is, <laughs> uh, weird thing to do while podcasting, but hey, whatever multitasking x1x she is quite right i said to myself as i took the seat under the passage what sorry i took the seat under the apple tree by the table laid for dinner under the great bow she is quite right i must leave ireland if i am not to grieve my brother and it would be well to spread the news for as soon as everybody knows that I'm going, I shall be free to stay as long as I please. A.E. will miss me, and John Eglinton, Yeats, will bear up manfully. Longworth, too, will miss me, and I shall miss them. But are they my kin? And if not, who are my kin? Steer, Tonks, Sicket, Dujarin, why enumerate? Ah, here is he who cast his spell over me from Axis... From, sorry, across the seas and keeps me here for some great purpose. Else, why am I here? The warm hour prompted you, A.E., to look through the hawthorns. It was the whiteness of the cloth that caught my eye, and you were surprised to see the table laid under the apple tree in this late season. But the only change in an hour less of light than a month ago, the evenings are as dry as they were in July, no dew falls, so I consulted Teresa, who never opposes my wishes, her only virtue. Here she comes across the sword with lamps. We shall dine in the midst of mystery. My fear is that the mystery may be deepened by the going out of the lamps. Teresa is not very capable, but I keep her for her amiability and her conversation behind my chair when I dine alone. Teresa, are you sure... You've wound the lamps. You've seen the oil flowing over the rim. She assured me that she had. You cannot have seen anything of the kind, I answered. The lamp has not been wound. And at that moment, the wicket slammed. Whoever this may be, A.E., do you entertain him? It is you, John Eglinton. Teresa and moderator lamps are incompatible. Next year I shall devise a system of aboreal illumination. But I hear today that you are thinking of leaving us. Who has been little tittle-tattling at the library this afternoon? It wasn't in the library this afternoon, so it must have been yesterday that I overheard some conversations as it passed through the turnstile. But you aren't thinking of leaving us, A.E. asked. Not tomorrow, nor the day after, nor the next year. I can't leave till the end of my lease. By then, you'll have had enough of me, don't you think so? You're not really thinking of leaving us. The only foundation for the rumour is that I mentioned to a lady the other day that I didn't 
look upon Ireland as the end of my earthly adventure, and she must have told one of her neighbours. 24 hours are all that is required for news to reach the National Library. John's face darkened. The National Library should not be spoken of as a house of gossip, even in joke. But you'll find, never find, elsewhere a house as suitable for your pictures, as beautiful a garden to walk in, or friends as appreciative of your conversation. You'll not find a finer intelligence than Yeats in London or Eglinton's. I am certain I shall never find myself among a more agreeable circle of friends. I'm heartbroken. So necessary are you all to me. Each stands for something. I should like to hear what AE stands for in your mind. Can you tell us? He makes me feel, at times, that the thither side is not dark, but dusk, and that an invisible hand weaves a thread of destiny through the daily woof of life. He makes me feel that our friendship was begun in some anterior existence, and will be continued. Perhaps, A.E., how conscious he is of his own eternity, I said, turning to John Nicklington, yet you are leaving us. How insistent he is, John, and yet, for all we know, he may be the first to leave us. He has certain knowledge of different incarnations. The first was in India, the second in Persia, his third, of which he keeps a distinct memory, happened in Egypt, about Babylon. I am not so sure, but A.E. dislikes irreverence, especially a light treatment of his ideas, and I did not dare to add that in heaven he is known as Elbar. But I asked him instead, if he were redeemed from the task of earning his daily bread, would he retire to Bengal or spend the rest of his life translating the sacred books of the East? His answer to this interesting question we shall never know. For yielding to the impulse of a sudden conviction, John Englinton interjected, If A.E. leaves Dublin and is not for the Bengal but for Ross's Point, formerly haunted by Manan, Machlir and Dagda, and now the Palestine of an interesting heresy known as atheism. At the end of our laughter, A.E. said, Now, will you tell us what idea John Eglinton stands for? He and you are opposite poles, I answered. You stand for belief, John Eglinton, for unbelief. On one side of me sits the great everything, and on the other, the great nothing. And which would you prefer that death should reveal to you? John Eglinton asked. Nothing or everything. You don't answer. Admit that you were just as leaf that death discovered nothing. It is easy to imagine a return to the darkness of out of which we came, out of which I came, and difficult to imagine my life in the grey dusk that A.E.'s eyes have revealed to me. But since you deny the worth of this life, I do not deny, John Eglinton answered. Yes, by your abstinence from your prose, you deny the value of your life. He doubts everything, A.E., the future of Ireland, the future, the value of literature, even the value of his own beautiful prose. What the frown, watch the frown coming into his face. I am forgetting, we mustn't speak of a collection, collected edition of his works, lest we spoil for him the taste of that melon. Who else is coming to dinner? John Eglinton asked. Conan said he would come, and he will turn up probably at the middle of dinner, pleading that I missed his train. Let us hear what idea Conan stands for, said John Englinton. An invisible hand introduces a special thread into the wolf which we must follow or perish, and as we stand with girt loins, a peal of laughter often causes us to hesitate. Laughter behind the veil, said John, and we, he spoke to me of a poem that he had received from Conan for publication in Dana. 
he had in his pocket and would be glad if I would say how it struck me. Only two stanzas, hardly longer than a limerick, but the poem could not be found among the bundle of papers he drew from his pocket, and when he gave up the search, definitely, A.E. said, I'm going to write the myths of your appearance and evanishment from Dublin, more the legend of the Fuka, who appeared some years ago, and the young people crowded about him, and he smelted them in the fires of the fierce heresies, and petrified them with tales of frigid immoralities. And anybody who wilted from the heat of Fuka flung from him, and anybody who was petrified, he broke in twain and flung aside as if as of no use. And at last, only four stood the test. Aeolus, because he was an artist and was enchanted with the performances of the Fuka, Johannes also remained because he was a contrary disposition and was only happy when contrary and contradicting. And the Fuca gave him the time of his life. There was Ulius, or Olivius, who was naturally more ribald than the Fuca, and had nothing to learn in blasphemy from him, but undertook the complete, to complete his education. And there was Ernestius, who practised law, but could not be browbeat. And to these four, the Fuca revealed his true being. You'll write that little pastoral for the next number of Dana, won't you, A.E., for we're short of an article. When I find the true reason of the Fuca's sudden disappearance, I will write it. You mean that you would like me to tell you the true reason? But is there a true reason for anything? There are a hundred reasons why I should not remain in Ireland always. And then, it being impossible for me to resist a year's eyes, I said, Well, the immediate reason is the colonel who says it will be a great grief to him if I declare myself a Protestant. But you aren't thinking of doing any such thing. You can't, said John Eglinton, as I was about to answer. A.E. interrupted. But I never thought of the colonel as a Catholic. I used to know him very well some years ago, and I always looked upon him as an agnostic. He may have been in his youth like others, but he is sinking into Catholicism. The last time he came to Dublin, we quarrelled, and I thought it for good, on account of what I said to him about his children. Don't ask me, A.E., to repeat what I said. It would be too painful, and I wish to forget the words... We shall never be the same friends as we were once, but we are still friends. I succeeded in persuading him to stop a few days longer, and during those days, while trying to avoid all religious questions, we fell to talking of family history, and he mentioned, accidentally, of course, that my family isn't a Catholic family, that it was my great-grandfather that verted my grandfather wasn't a Catholic, but my father was, more or less, in his old age. I assure you the news that there was only one generation of Catholicism behind me came as sweetly as the south wind blowing over the Downs, and I said at once I should like to declare myself Protestant. It was then that he answered that it would be a great grief to him if I did so. I shouldn't so much mind it grieving him in so good a cause if I hadn't used the words that drove him out of the house. My dilemma was most painful, to bear the shame of being considered a Catholic all my life, or I, so I consulted a friend of mine, in whom I have great confidence, and she said, if you can't remain in Ireland without declaring yourself a Protestant and wouldn't grieve your brother, you had better leave Ireland. But were you in earnest when you told your brother you'd like to declare yourself a Protestant? John Eglinton asked. I don't joke on such subjects. What means did you propose to take? A letter to the Times? I had thought of that and of a lecture, but decided that the first step to take would be to write up to write to the Archbishop. 
but the archbishop would ask if you believed in 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 any in a great many things which you don't believe in everything can be explained i take it for granted for that being a man of the world you would not express you would not press me to say that i believe in the resurrection of the body saint paul didn't believe in it i can cite your text after text we're not in disagreement with you but we're thinking whether dr peacock will accept your interpretation of the texts you think that the Archbishop would ask me to accept the bodily resurrection of Christ? I'm afraid, said John Eglinton, that you'll have to accept the bi- both body and spirit. I hadn't foreseen these difficulties. A.E. tried to prove to me that I should stay in Ireland, and now you are providing me with excellent reasons for leaving. It's only contrary, John, that's talking, and A.E. is the most dulcet tones. You'll never leave us. Well, I've told you, A.E., that I can't leave till the end of my lease. My dear A.E., sufficient for the day or for the evening, I should have said... I see Teresa and the gardener coming down the greenswood, and soon a refreshing odour of pea soup will arise through the branches now. The question is whether we shall eat the melon with salt and pepper before the soup, or reserve it till the end of dinner and eat it with sugar. But where's Conan, Teresa? You will kindly walk across and ask. The wicket change clanged, and we watched the author of most of the great limericks coming towards us. My masterpiece, it was all... Always popular, he added, dropping his voice, as Yeats does when he is complimented on Inef's free. He was always popular and from the first, but you remind me of a tale long ago, not the Trinity, though there are bread and wine by you. I am thinking of some Latin poet. It is more that puts the story into my head, a Latin poet banished to the Pontic Seas, Ovid, sitting with his friends. So you've heard the news. I have heard... No news, no, none since my parlour maid burst into my study with the news that the lamps were lighted in the garden and the company were at the table. And what better news could I hear than that? You haven't heard that Maurice leaving us? Leaving us? I hope his friend Sir Thomas Thornley Stoker hasn't discovered anything that very special in Liffey Street. He has been up and down the many times lately on the trail of Sheraton sideboard and Naylor has been asked to keep it till an appendicitis should turn up. The Chinese Chippendale mirror over the drawing room chimney piece originated in an unsuccessful operation for cancer and old bustoned carpet in the drawer. Back drawing room represents a hernia, the Renaissance bronze on the landing of the set of the gallstones. The Ming cloisonne, a floating kidney and bull cabinet is opinion on the enlarged liver and Lady Stoker's jewels, a series of small operations performed over a term of years. We broke into laughter. He's very amusing, eh? We spit, and at the end of our laughter, I explained that Sir Tornley was supreme in the suburbs of art, but as soon as he attempted to storm the citadel to buy pictures, he was as helpless as an old housewife. How many Sir Joshua and Gainsboroughs have I saved from him? If he ever sells his collection, I suppose it will fetch a great deal of money. It never will be sold in his lifetime, John, but at his death there will be a great auction. The terms of the will are explicit, arranging not only for his own departure, but for the departure of his curiosities. Wound in an old Florentine brocade, he will be laid in a second-hand coffin, 1 BC, and driven to Mount Jerome, and on the same evening the curiosities will leave for England. Naylor, Sir Thornley's chief agent accompanying them to Kingston and standing on the end of the pier two yards of cray floating from his hat like a ganflon and the renaissance wand in his hands his sighs will fill the sails of the parting ship without however his tears sensibly increasing the volume of the rising time tide and when the last speck disappears over the horizon he will fa- fall suddenly forward but for what feat of surgery did a great grateful patient send him the second hand coffin 
Conan continued to pile imagination upon imagination until the conversation drifted back to the point from which it had started. Had I really made up my mind to leave Dublin? My dear Conan, if you'll stop talking, more will tell you why he conceives himself to be under an obligation to leave us. I'm sure I beg your pardon. I didn't believe in the possibility of leaving you till you carried out the woods to the Killington, the spot mentioned in the chapter of the lake which you read to us last Saturday under this tree. It's only this, Conan, that John Eglinton heard in the National Library. Well, of course, if it was heard in the National Library and John Conan went off into the peal of laughter, bringing a dark and perplexed look into John's eyes. Well, Conan, if you want to hear why I thought of leaving Ireland, not today or tomorrow, but eventually I'll tell you, but I must not be interrupted again. A.E. and John England, who have no Catholic relations, will have some difficulty in understanding me, but you will understand and they will understand too when I remind them that until you are years ago, that dear Edward insisted on making my dinner of egg instead of the chicken, and on going to Mass on Sunday, he is interested, and so exclusively in his own soul, that he regards mine when I am visiting him as essential to upkeep of his. Now I can cannot keep, help thinking that I remain in Ireland and were to fall dangerously ill until your other spiritual tyranny of years ago might have revived in more serious form. His anxiety about his soul would force him to bring a Catholic priest to my bedside, and if this were to happen, and I failed to yell out in the holy man's ear when he bent over me to Hear my confession to hell with the Pope. The rumor would go forth that I died fortified by the rights of the Holy Catholic Church. But you are not leaving us because you think you're going to die until your end that Edward will bring a priest to your priest to your bedside. No, that would be hardly sufficient reason for leaving my friends, but I confess that I should like to die in the Protestant country among my co religionists. Moore is thinking of declaring himself a Protestant. The Colonel he has said that it would be a great grief to him if I were to do so. But you'll excuse me, Conan, if I don't stop to explain, for I notice that he hasn't touched his fish, and that Teresa has begun to despair of being able to retract his attention to the lobster sauce. A.E., I shall be obliged to ask everybody present to cease talking so that you may eat your fish. The spirit in you must have acquired a great command over the flesh for that turbo not to tempt you. It tastes to me as if it had only just come out of the sea. A capon follows the tubo and the whole of our dinner, but have no fear, the bird is one of the finest, weighing nearly five pounds. What beneficent providence led into, into such excess of fat? cried Conan. He neither delved nor span nor wasted his tissues in a vain flirtation. A little of paration released it from the feminine trouble and allowed it to spend its days in attaining glory to which more... With all this literature, will never attain the glory of a fat capon. At the end of the laughter, Conan cried, the unlabouring brood of the coop. You know Yeats' slime, the unlabouring brood of the skies. For a long time, I thought that Yeats was referring to the priests, but he must have been thinking of capons. No, he knows nothing of capons. He must have been thinking of the stars. Oh, songless bird, far sweeter than the rose and virgin, as a parish priest, God knows. Fearing that Conan's jests might... Jesus, perhaps it goes forever... Fearing that Conan's jest might scandalise the gardener, and remembering that there was only white wine at the table, I sent him to the house to fetch the red. Teresa could remain, for she had told me that there had been duties for many a year, and I had come to look upon her as one of my sheaves. A more fragrant bird was never carved, and I beg of you, Ada, either wing of the gods have given you. He lived and died for us, and here is the gardener with the wine that comes from the borado in barrels, a pleasant sound dinner wine. I don't press it upon you to a vintage wine, but I am told that it is by no means disgraceful. You see, I am dependent upon others, and only knowing the wound of ordinaire from Chefouleti, because of my preference for the former, I warrant that the innocent run nuns up there, now abed, wondering why the lights are burning in my garden and better bibbers than anybody at this table but except perhaps conan all a row of in their cells they lie wondering what impiety their neighbor is organizing i suppose but you have all heard the report that i have re-established the worship of the venus in this garden bringing flowers to her statue every morning 
Perhaps they think these lamps are an illumination in her honour, he suggested, causing them to look into the mirrors often than the rule allows Then There was a time when I liked to stand on my back window and watch them following winding walks down upon beautiful trees. While their neighbours, the washerwomen, blasphemed over their washtubs, the contrast between the sum of the common gardens separated by a nine-inch wall used to amuse me, but now I take no further interest in the nuns, not since they have put up the horrible red brick building in the examination hall of the music room. Spoiling excellent material for kitchen maids, said Conan. But be that as it may, the most doleful sounds of the harp and violin come from the windows are spoiling my meditations. In Dublin there is no escape from the religious. If I walked to Carlisle Bridge... To take a car to the moat house, I meet seminarists all along the pavement. Groups of threes and fours, their full-blown priests flaunt past me, rosy-cheeked pompous men dangling gold watch chains across their paunches and tipping silk hats over their benign brows. They're vulpine brows, Conan said. A black queue stretching right across Dublin from Jermacondoma along the Marion Road. The other day, a particularly aggressive priest walked step for step with me as far as Sydney Parade and as... It seemed to me that when I altered my pace, he altered his. I was going to, on to see John Eglinton, and no sooner had I ste- outstepped the priest than the great wall of the common in front of me. I wonder where all the money comes from. Out of Purgatory's bank, Conan answered cheerfully, and there is no fear of them overdrawing their account, for the money is always dribbling, and if nothing, thief thrives in Ireland like a convent. A public house and a race meeting. Uh, any small house will do for a beginning. A poor box is put in a wall. A couple of blind girls are taken in. A salubrious is a climate that the nuns find themselves in five years of the Gregorian, Georgian house, situated in the middle of the beautiful park. The covenant whose mystic music distracts your meditations is occupied by Loreto nuns. A teaching order where the daughters of Dublin shopkeepers are short of requiring a nice accent of French and English. The St. Vincent's Hospital at the corner is run by nuns who employ training nurses to tend the sick. The eyes of the modern nun may look no under the bedclothes. The medieval nun had no such scruples. Our neighbourhood is a little overdone in confidence. The north side is still richer, but let's count what we have around us. Two in Leeson Street, one in Baker Street in Training College, one in Ballsbridge, two in Donnybrook, one in the Rayleigh. And there is a comedy in Sandy Mount. There is a in John Englinton's comedy in Marion. There is another in Booster Town. Still Oregon Road is free from them, but I hear that a foreign order is watching the beautiful residences on the right and left. And as soon as one comes into the market, you have been out hawking, my dear Moore, and I appeal to you that the hen bird is much stronger, fiercer, swifter than the teethle. The Tearcell, of course, for while he was pursuing any quarry, the Black Rock, the larger and stronger of the birds, the Sister of the Mercy and the Sister of the Sacred Heart, struck down on Mount Anvil, Milton and Linden, all the same. The little Tearcell has managed to secure Stillorgan Castle on the adjacent hillside, a home for lunatic gentlemen, most of them Dublin publicans, like my neighbour Cunningham, who only just escaped incarceration. He was a very tragic story, said John Eglinton. Did you never suspect him of being a bit queer? It has often seemed odd to not exchange a good morning from doorstep to doorstep. His old housekeeper was affable enough. He would bid me kindly greeting when I returned to the home after a short absence in the West, and he must... And she must have gossiped with my servants, for some of the mystery of which he surrounded himself vanished. I certainly did hear somebody that was a rule never to have a bite or sup outside his own house. It must have been my cook who told me, and now I come to think of it, she added somewhat contemptuously that he dined in the middle of the day and went out for his walk at three o'clock. At the mo- As the clock struck, he sallied forth, a most laughable and absurd little man, no more than two inches over five feet, a long, thick body, was set on short as possible legs, and he was always dressed the same in yellow overcoat and wide, grey trousers, no one liked the dear Edwards. I would... Be an exaggeration to say that Cunningham was one of the sights of Dublin, 
when he rolled down the pavement for his walk with a thick stick in his hand, a corpulent cigar between his teeth, a white flower in his buttonhole. He was one of the minor sights of Dublin as he went away towards the Phoenix Park, a little jolly fellow to the casual observer. But to me, he who saw him every day, he has good humour, seems superficial and to overlie a deep-set melancholy, the melancholy of the dwarf, Conan said under his breath. His walk was always up the main road in the Phoenix Park as he Castle not gate and back again and think his old housekeeper told Miss Goff that he wouldn't miss his walk for the King of England. You asked me if I knew him. I never saw anybody more determined not to make my acquaintance. When he passed each other in the street, he always averted his eyes as if I had been polite. I should have imitated him, but I could not keep myself from looking into his comical eyes turned up at the corners and wondering at the great roll of flesh from ear to ear and the chins descending step by step into his bottom. It was from Sir Thornley Stoker that I learned how determined he was not to make acquaintance. You can guess, he said, one day, whom I have let out of the room, your next-door neighbour Cunningham. I begged him to stay to meet you, but it was impossible to persuade him. He said, no, no, I won't meet George. And so Sir Thornley, pressing him to give a reason, he refused, urging as an excuse that I was an enemy of the church. But I think myself that he was afraid I would put into print some of the stories that it was his wont to tell against the priests. He had stories about everybody, even about me. That very afternoon, Sir Sir Tornley could hardly speak for laughing. If you had only heard him just now telling, but tell me, what was it? I can't tell you. It's the Dublin accent and the Dublin dialect. It was all about Evelyn Innes. You don't know what you've missed. And he turned over in his chair laughing again. There's no use my trying to tell it. You should hear Cunningham, but I can't hear Cunningham. He won't know me. At last, apologising for spoiling the story, Sir Tornley told me that it was must make a grand racy description of two workmen who had come to Upper Eli Place to mend the drains in front of my house after having dug a hole where they took a seat at either end and sat spitting into from time to time a solemn silence until at last one said to the other, Do you know the fellow that lives in the house? Fornist. Yes. You don't? Well, I'll tell you who he is. He's the fellow that wrote Evelyn Innes. And who was he? She was a... She? She was a great opera singer. And the story is all about that old hat. She was lying on a crimson sofa with mother-of-pearl legs when the baronet came into the room, his eyes jumping out of his head, and as he... As hot as be damned, without so much as a good morrow, he jumped down on his knees alongside her, and the next chapter is in Italy. The crimson sofa with the mother-of-pearl legs and the baronet... As hot as be damned would be about as much of your story as a Dublin workman would be likely to gather from the book which Arlington said. The touch that Evelyn Innes is all about the old hat is excellent. Conan the became like a grave doth that licks his lips after a savoury morsel and continue. I told him how in the last three months before his death we all noticed a great change in Cunningham. His face turned to the colour of lead and all the old housekeeper often talked to Miss Goff about him, not saying much, expressing his alarms as old women do with a shake of her head. One day she said, the master has got a very queer lately and uh, would sit for hours brooding, not saying a word or anybody, and then about three weeks after that she rushed into the house distracted, wringing her hands, speaking incoherently, telling us not finding her master in his bedroom. When she took him a cup of tea, she had gone to seek him in the closet and not finding him there. She had rushed up to the top landing and after hanging himself from the banisters, she wailed and I sent the police. For and for his solicitor and sat on the stairs till they came. No one will ever know what he suffered. I didn't tell Miss Goff that he was sit for hours and he did not say a word to anyone. He must have been thinking of it all the time and little did I understand him when he said many and many the time he did he said it was 
He went upstairs to bed. They'll never get me as long as I've got this right hand of my body. I don't know if the tragedy transpires in my telling, but what I see is a retired Republican overcome by scruples of conscience. His failing brain filled with memories of early beguiled customers and many sources of clearly drinking more than it was good for them, a man would very soon begin to believe that all the allies and the clergy, the demons, were after him and that he could only save himself by giving all his money for the masses for the repose of his soul and that is what he did it all went to masses or nearly all the relations got very small part after threatening to contest the will but what interests me is the agony of mind that must have suffered week in week out repeating it they'll never get me as long as i've got the right hand on my body the phrase must have run in the old household's head and somebody seeing that his mind was giving way and fearing lest he might kill himself may have said to him you had better put yourself under restraint his adviser may have suggested John of God's, and this advice, though well meant, may perhaps have destroyed what remained of this poor mind. They'll never get me as long as I've got this right hand of my body. It was with that phrase he went up to bed one evening and hanged himself next morning from the banisters with a leather strap. Miss Goth met him coming home that evening before he killed himself and tells me that she never forgot the look on his face have you ever seen a maniac and the cunning look at the corner of the eyes which says no you think you're going to get the best of me but you aren't she remembers noticing that look on his face as he passed her his two hands thrust into his pockets of his short overcoat he was bringing home the strap for the old woman said at the inquest that he had brought in brought in that evening I suppose he was hiding it under the overcoat. I wonder why he waited till early the next morning before hanging himself. Poor little man, the strap was the great romance of his life. The phrase jarred a little, no one answered, and then his voice hardly breaking and silent. Jonathan spoke of the tragedy that occurred under voice under the own windows and the barred window of the old coaching inn at the end of the avenue and the elm trees down at the Marion Louvre, looking at the great park and the wine of the comet stands and none had been found drowned or little by the garden. It was not related to the newspaper merely of the fact that she had been found in the pond one morning. He was started at the inquest that the nun was a sleepwalker and the verdict returned was one of accidental death. The verdict was a suicide at the moment of the temporary insanity would not have been agreeable to the nuns, but to me, the teller of tales is more interesting to think that she had gone down to the nun to escape from some thought, some fear, some suffering that could be endured no longer. She was free to leave the convent. The bars that restrained her were no longer, were no iron bars, but they were not less secure for that. She have she may have suffered like Cunningham for scruples of conscience and gone down in despair to the pond. And while you were dressing yourself to go to National Drive, she was floating among the water weeds and flowers. More is thinking of Amelia Ophelia said, I, yes, I was thinking of Evelyn Times, the most literary end of the hero would have drowned herself in the fish pond. I'm sorry, it didn't occur to you. It did occur to me many times. I could have first seen the nuns coming down in the morning to find her floating. Her body doesn't float, I said, till nine days after, and she can't shake herself free from the memory of Ophelia Conan, who had been left out of the conversation for a long time, was getting irritated. He jumped up in his athlete's skin and jumped in the arena. More is wondering what thought, what fear, what scruples the content may have sent her down to the pond. As if there was not quite obviously that drove her down there, she was in love with John, and she would not listen to her. One night, finding that he put bars in his window, she walked to the ports of ponds, as more would say, like one overtaken by irreparable catastrophe. A.E. and I laughed. John looked at a little puzzled and a little vexed. As he always does, at any allusion to himself, a wicked gate clanged, and Teresa came across the greenswood saying, Please, sir, you're wanted on the telephone, and Conan disappeared quietly and into the darkness. We all wished, or perhaps it would be more exact if I said that I wished to discuss Conan now that he left us and is seeking some natural transition. I watched the moth buzzing around the globe of the lamb and thought of the desire of the moth of the star. Conan would be able to protect, repeat the poem 
but the transition would be too obvious in the moon that gave me one the yellow sickle rising on a leaden sky among the arches and chimney of the convent and we have heard that Conan thinks of the nuns or now I wonder that the nuns would think of Conan A.E. spoke of reckless imagination of his power and perceiving distant analogies connecting it by Cape Horn and the breath of the yeats in line the unlabouring brood of the skies and better still the house of symbols in the antique oven and this consolate dealer standing at the end of the Kingston power pier watching the furniture departing under the smoke pour I wonder what he will become I was much struck, Donny Clinton said at Mayor's prophecy. Do you remember it? He said that he had known many young men like Conan, all very defiant until they were 30, and every one after 30 had developed into commonplace fathers of families renowned for all their virtues. I wonder what that be, the end of Conan. A deep silence followed, and then half to myself and half to my companions, I said, do you think he has shaken himself free of the Catholic superstitions? Don Eglinton was not sure that he had done this. Merely telling stories about the avarice of priests is not enough. A man must think himself out of it, and I'm not sure that Mayer isn't right. Catholics and agnostic in youth, quiescent in middle age, crawl thumpers between 50 and 60. Then we began to talk, as all Irishmen do, of what Ireland was and what she is and what she's becoming, and there is no becoming an Ireland and since she is always the same and great in her mass of superstition. Home rules at A.E. will stop a flood of intelligence, and perhaps the parish priest will drown in this flood. A.E. did not think this necessary. Do you think the flood of intelligence will penetrate into the covenant and release the poor women wasting their lives? Not. I'm not thinking of nuns, Johnny Clinton said. Those who have gone into covenants had better remain in them. The home rule will be of no avail unless somebody comes with it, like Fox or like Bunyan bringing the Bible or writing a book like the Pilgrim's Progress more is too much of a toff. The Messiah will not wear the appearance that you expect him to wear. Salvation always comes from an unexpected quarter. It may come from A.E. It may come from me. It may come from you. John laughed scornfully at the idea that he should bring anybody anything. It was against my idea. Advice, John, that you named your magazine after the goddess. You should have called it the heretic. You are quite right, A.E. We want heresy in Ireland, for there can be no religious thoughts without heresy. Spain declined as soon as she rid herself of heretics. If one can call Mohammedanism a heresy, at least I was competitive religion. The persecution of the Protestants in France was followed by the expulsion of the Jesuits and the confiscation of their lands. No country can afford to be without heretics, and in the view of tendency of Catholic countries rid themselves of their clergy, wouldn't it be good thing for the Irish bishops to send Logue to the Vatican so that he might explain to his holiness the necessity of Protestantism. You needn't look further than Ireland for an apt illustration, Holy Father, if on the passing of the Home Rule Bill we are set to work to persecute the Protestant minority, the terrible fate of exile may be mine. We must look ahead, Holy Father. Logue may beg his holiness to withdraw the Netemir decree, said John Eglinton. I wouldn't advise like to be explicit. The decree can be politely ignored by the bishops, Irish bishops. When the Catholic girl who is going to marry a Protestant approaches the priest to learn the religion of a child shall be she brought up, he will answer her in the religion of your husband. But my husband is a Protestant, my dear daughter. You, We do not know if he will remain Protestant. We rely on you to use every effort to persuade him from the errors of Protestantism so that your children may be brought up in a holy church. And to young young man who wishes to marry a Protestant girl, the priest will say, your child... 
Your children will be brought up in the religion of their mother, but their mother is a Protestant who we do not know, my dear son, that your wife will remain Protestant if you will do all your power to bring her into the one true fold. I am confident that you will succeed. The idea of the indigenous one, ingenious one, said John Eglinton, and Teresa came across the sword to tell me that Mr. Zobel, Mr. Hughes, Mr. Longbirds, Mr. O'Sullivan, and Mr. Yeats were waiting in the dining room. Will you have coffee in the house or out here, sir? We had better have it up in the house. The table will be cleared, and Teresa, please place a lamp at the wicket. For if you don't, you'll certainly break my dessert service and hurt yourself. Come, A.E., I've got a cigar for you that I think will please you, and afterwards you can smoke your pipe. And that's the end of chapter 19. More religious babble. Jesus, I mean, like, can you... No one can babble on about the most tedious of things, like a author who's obsessed with their own intelligence and thinks that the most intelligent thing to write about is religion and religious debate and that's just waffle like it's just dumb waffle it's worse than stoner babble protestant catholic protestant catholic protestants do this but catholics do this but protestants do that no one actually gives a shit and you don't sound smart by going on and on about it you sound like an absolute dickhead No one cares. Shut the hell up, George Moore. You're a stupid idiot. You're a stupid, 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 boring, dumb idiot. And your book is about dumb shit that no one cares about. Anyway, that's today's chapter. See you tomorrow.